right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's going on? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star is going to join us in about 35 minutes. From right now, we'll have David Lesky. Of Inside the Crown joining us at 4.40 to talk a little Royals. Normally, we talk with David on Mondays, but obviously didn't get the chance to do that this week with Labor Day. So we'll talk with David then. We're out early today at 5.30 because of those Royals with pregame starting at 5.30. First pitch a little after 6 o'clock right here on KLWN. The University of Cincinnati has officially submitted a request to join the Big 12. This according to... And I, I don't know the guy's first name. Um, it is Jay Williams. I don't think it's the uh, Duke Jay Williams, but he works for the USA Today in Ohio. Twitter handle, his Twitter name is Jay Williams. Doesn't give a first name. You try to click the link to the article. You got to pay for it, which I'm all about, you know, paying for local journalism and stuff, but I'm not going to pay for a subscription to a newspaper in Ohio to see what his name is. I'm sorry. I'm just... Not, you know, so Jay Williams, whatever your first name is, if anybody knows, uh, making the report about the University of Cincinnati. Uh, Houston, already on Tuesday, was authorized by their board of regents to negotiate and execute documents to join the Big 12. And now Cincinnati today, it probably is only a matter of time. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear it at some point during the show or tomorrow or Friday that we're going to hear the same stuff from BYU and UCF. Now, specifically for the schools coming from the AAC, the timeline for this of when this could all occur, of when you add these four teams, and, you know, I mean, there's moving parts here, right? Is it going to turn it into the Big 12 because Texas and Oklahoma are gone by the time these four add in? Or is it going to be a situation where the four you add in add on to Texas and Oklahoma currently staying in the conference till 2025 and it's 14 teams. I don't know. Eventually though, it probably will get down to 12 and and who knows, maybe the big 12 would be interested in expanding again. Maybe more schools like West Virginia would want to leave to the ACC. Who knows where things stand right now on the expansion front and just realignment front in college football. But With BYU, it's a little bit of a different situation. They're an independent school, so they're not having to pay their conference a bunch of money to leave the league. They don't have any tie-downs in that way. I don't know how that totally works with, you know, like, I guess there would be tie-ins from, like, a baseball and basketball perspective during the West Coast Conference, so they do have to leave it from that standpoint. But I, I can't imagine the buyout is that much because football is not involved there. And that's where most of the money is derived for when you're leaving your different conferences. So I don't think they'd have to 
pay much, but obviously being an independent school, all of their games are scheduled out of non-conference. So they would have to figure that out. And do they break contracts of games that they have scheduled? Do they have to reschedule and push them around down the road? Like that might cause a little bit of a buyout. But overall with BYU, like there, I don't know. There's a very real scenario to me where I could see, hey, we're going to add the rest of these three teams in 2023-2024, but BYU, we're going to add you right away. And it's not like you have divisions, so it wouldn't make it so that one division has more teams than the next. So I I don't know what will happen with BYU. Or maybe it's just easier. Maybe it's a more seamless transition if they all add at the same time. But specifically for those AAC schools, the AAC requires 27 months of notice and a $10 million exit fee to leave the conference. Now, obviously, everything is negotiable, right? That's just what the contract is. You know, sometimes you can get the lawyers involved and all of a sudden, okay, all we're requiring now, just give us 20 months, but pay us a $15 million exit fee. I think UConn, when they left the AAC to go independent in football and go to the Big East in basketball, had to, or or were able to negotiate it down to, I believe, an 18-month notice and like a $17 million exit fee. So you can work with that, but if you did just take that verbatim, for what it is in the contract, 27 months from now would put things in in December of 2023. And you're not going to just have them join in the middle of the academic calendar, which means that the first year, the first season, they would be a part of your conference would be the 2024 to 2025 season. And that would be your final season before the Big 12 would have to renegotiate its media rights. So that's not necessarily super ideal. And by all accounts, just reading some of the different reports that are out there, you know, Andy Staples wrote about this in The Athletic. It seems like the Big 12 would prefer that these teams join in the summer of 2023. And that would mean the current iteration of the Big 12 would be in place the rest of this year. And then next year, before that change incurred, and Again, like that's without knowing what the deal is with Texas and Oklahoma because the Big 12 has not been informed by them yet that they're going to leave. Typically, they require 18 months of notice. But again, as we mentioned with the 27 months in the AAC, all it takes is some lawyers renegotiating and that changes up. So who knows how long Texas would be there for that. But that would allow you basically two years before the media rights are up if you bring them on in the summer of 2023. They get the 2023 to 24 season and the 2024 to 25 seasons in the conference before that occurs. And I don't know how much what the deal with Texas and Oklahoma has an impact of when they join. You know, if Texas and Oklahoma do leave after this year and just pay some huge buyout, do you think about trying to get them to join earlier and using some of that buyout money to bring them on even earlier? Do you try to bring them on that extra year in 2023 so that you get an extra couple of years of TV ratings where, you know, UCF is playing Texas and maybe it helps you be able to say, no, UCF draw drew this many on the TV ratings, even though that's partially because of Texas, but maybe that t- those types of games, those type of marquee performances help build up the program, help build up your stature of the other schools still remaining. I don't know. 
Now, by putting it in 2023, if that is indeed what they want to do, or even 2024 when the 27 months would be up, as opposed to doing this as soon as next year, the current schools in the league would get more money in the short term for the next couple of years because they would have that bigger slice of pie in the short term since the Big 12 didn't. They, they did away. They got bought out by ESPN for the part of the deal where they were getting a pro-rate contract where every school they added, the Big 12 would have to, hey, if we're paying $30 million a school, every school you add, we're also paying $30 million for the schools. And we don't want to do that, so we offered you a huge lump sum of money. It gets distributed to all the different teams in the conference. And boom, we don't have to worry about that now. Well, it hurts you a little in that regard, but by pushing it off till 2023 or 2024, when you'd have these teams enter, you get a couple more years of the current fees in the Big 12. But like I said, if Texas and Oklahoma do pay that big buyout and do leave as soon as, you know, this summer or something, does that change the calendar? Does that change when the Big 12 would want these teams to come on? I don't know. I'm really interested how this would be structured with the different schools coming on. Now, obviously, with Texas and Oklahoma, if they're still in the league when these teams join, at least for a couple of years, I think it gets pretty complicated because there's not like a perfect north-south split. There's not a perfect east-west split in the conference, right? Like, if you split it up north and south, I mean, you could put, what, like, in the north, BYU, Cincinnati, West Virginia as the new teams. And then you have Kansas, Kansas State, Iowa State. Who's the seventh team that's going to be in the north? You're not going to split up the Oklahoma schools, are you? I guess you could and do protected rivals. I, I don't know. It just becomes very difficult with figuring out what you would do there. But if it is with the 12-team Big 12, once Texas and Oklahoma are gone and you insert these four, you have a couple options. I mean, you can look at it one way. The The old Big 12 used to be north-south, right? You could have pretty much your Texas South division with TCU, Baylor, Texas Tech, Houston, and then add on Oklahoma State, UCF. They're in the south, even though it's southeast. And then you have your north division, KUK State, Iowa State, BYU, West Virginia, Cincinnati. And West Virginia, Cincinnati are kind of your travel partners over there to where you see this in the Pac-12, like, in basketball specifically or the in the Olympic sports, volleyball, so to speak, you'll go for a weekend, you'll play, say, Utah on a Thursday or Friday, and then you'll play Colorado on, say, Saturday or Sunday because those are kind of the travel partners. And so that you're getting more bang for your buck with travel. You'd be able to, hey, okay, on Thursday we're going to travel to West Virginia. Saturday we'll play Cincinnati. And that way we're not having to make multiple flights halfway across the country. So you could do that. You could also do the pod system, right? You do the West Pod with BYU, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, the Central with KUK State, Iowa State, whatever you want to do with those and, and get as creative as you want. It actually works out, I think, okay with the 12 teams, but it's just kind of weird with Texas and Oklahoma. But, I mean, when I think about, like, where KU football is, that might be the best thing for them, especially if they do get structured into a more friendly North division or so forth, like the old Big 12. Like, think about it. In the old Big 12, you had Texas and Oklahoma in the South who – Given on the right year, you got to avoid those schools in your schedule for KU. And that was the case with the Orange Bowl team for KU. You got to avoid those schools on your schedule. And then all it takes from there is whoever's supposed to be the top team in your division has kind of a down year, which is the case with Nebraska. And boom, everything's building for Kansas. It comes at the right point between having the right schedule and being a really good team that year. 
it just gives you more opportunity to have that special season in that right spot. Now, without Texas and Oklahoma in the conference at all, maybe that's not as important, but that definitely played into KU's Orange Bowl season, and I think it's good to point out. So I, I think that could work perfectly, especially you think of 2023. Um, this year, K, I mean, last year, KU played the most freshmen in the country. You still have a really young team this year. You're probably going to have a young team next year, but it'll be obviously a little older. By the time you get to the 2023 football season, like KU could be ready to strike on being a competitive team for, who knows, four, five, six wins, maybe making a bowl game. And if that coincides with having these new teams in here, which, you know, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, all of a sudden it's easier because it's not. Cincinnati's a top 10 team right now. UCF has been a really good football program over the last decade. BYU, same thing. I mean, that was a top 20 program a season ago, and they're constantly winning between six and nine games seemingly every year, playing a bunch of Power 5 schools. Houston as well. I mean, they haven't really been up as much lately, but, you know, they have a pretty big hotbed for recruiting, and they've had some really, really good years. You're not adding any, you know, cakewalks in there, but would you rather play, you know, UCF or Oklahoma? I don't know. Maybe it all coincides. Maybe it, it means nothing at all. But I, I think it would probably be a good thing for KU from a football perspective. But the two most important things at the baseline, it, it, I mean, it's a little with football, but it comes down to this for the Big 12 moving forward. One, whatever you do with adding these teams, restructuring, number one, make as close to what you've been making now with the media rights, TV deals, and so forth. How can you get as close to that bottom dollar, to that big amount of money that you're making in the current Big 12 with whatever you add once you lose Texas and Oklahoma? That's number one. Number two, remain a Power 5 accredited conference. And on one hand, you worry about them remaining that Power 5 conference that gets that automatic bid to a New Year's Six Bowl because that's a pretty big deal as opposed to being lumped into the group of five where it's just, hey, just one of you guys, whoever's the best of you guys gets in. That's that's a big deal. But we also, I mean, right now, we have no clue if those even New Year's Six Bowls are going to be around or if it'll just be like, hey, they'll just be part of the expanded playoff with 12 teams. Is that going to happen? Is it not going to? We don't know. And if it is an expanded playoff, then I would think, like, the winner of the Big 12 is going to get in every year, at least with the current rules that they proposed where it's the top six conference champions. Like, that's probably still going to happen for the Big 12. So they should be fine, at least on most years, with their best teams. But at least in the short term, those contracts do keep them in as a Power 5 school, get them the automatic bid for the New Year's Six for a few years. And if you're watching the ACC or the Pac-12 over the weekend, you see Washington lose to Montana, Oregon State lose to Purdue, Oregon struggle with um, Fresno State, Stanford get killed by Kansas State. Like, and in the ACC, too, like outside of Clemson, we so sure that a new iteration of the Big 12 that would feature BYU, UCF, Cincinnati, Houston without Oklahoma and Texas, we so sure the Big 12 in that situation isn't still right on line with the Pac 12 and the ACC. I think the biggest difference, there's one big difference, it's that those conferences have a team that you view as a perennial title contender. Right with the ACC right now, it's Clemson. We've seen it be Florida State before. We've seen it be Miami before. Now all those teams haven't been up at the same time, 
but it seems like there's room for at least one of those, maybe two, each and every year in the ACC. With the Pac-12, right now USC is down a little bit, but historically USC has been that team. Oregon has been that team over the past decade for them. The Big 12 wouldn't really have that on paper, but, I mean, when you look at depth-wise, they'd be probably even better than those leagues, and it's just kind of dependent on a point of view for that standpoint, but as far as a power emerging, like, that's not impossible either. You know, we've seen this before. Like, Nebraska was so good in the old Big 8. What happens if some team, just by the new conference coming together, is able to, based on recruiting ties and realignment and how everything shakes out they're able to become the new Nebraska of the league like that is definitely a possibility so I think the Big 12 will be okay with this expansion I still think you know if you're Kansas and you get the offer from the Big 10 and they say hey come on down you do it but who knows if that offer is even there and if it's not and this is kind of the backup option I don't think it's the worst thing in the world this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star joins us in about 20 minutes. Get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's, you know, washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on KLWN. Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star joins us now as he does every Wednesday here on RCST. Jesse, Jason Bean kind of mixed results in his first performance at the end. Did what matters most, I guess, which is get the win and lead the big drive at the end and convert a big fourth down at the end. And, and that's what most quarterbacks are judged on. But you look at Maybe some of the numbers like total QBR or uh, passer efficiency, and maybe it's not as as much as you would have liked to see. But was it enough for you to say the potential is there? Can Jason Bean be as good or better than what you got out of Carter Stanley in 2019? Ooh, that's a that's a that's a pretty high bar. Uh, Carter was really good in 19, and I would say easily the best quarterback KU's had since Todd Reesing. So you're talking about, for KU football, at least a once-in-a-decade player sort of thing. Um, you know, probably not enough to say that he's at that level yet, but um, enough to say that he's more toward Big 12 caliber than what they normally had at that position. I, I would definitely go there. And, you know, you mentioned some of the things that didn't go well for him. Some of that, I think, is circumstances, too, just because KU could not get any run game going at all. And the offensive line really struggled. You know, it's something I wrote about today in the Kansas City Star, some of the, the run-blocking stuff that, the, you know, that, that you look up, you see there's miscommunication and there's just poor blocks. And, and really, um, KU wasn't getting much help, or Jason Bean wasn't getting much help in that regard at all. It takes the pressure off of him. But 
Um, there's some good things there, you know, and, and there's some things that you think will get better over time. When we talked about, uh, you know, whatever, three or four weeks ago, when I thought for sure that Miles Kendrick was going to be a starting quarterback for Kansas, we talked about, hey, the reason that KU would do that is because Miles Kendrick knows the offense, and he knows the play calls, and he's a good game manager, all those sorts of things. Well, KU kind of threw Jason to be in the fire here, and, and at this moment, he's not a great game manager, and he's not always going to maybe know all the positions on the offense and have everybody lined up correctly, all those sorts of things. Those are places where he can really gain on, uh, you know, throughout the course of the, rest of the season, but you know, he has a dangerous weapon in his legs, and you saw that when some things were breaking down. He could scramble, get out of the pocket, and gain you four or five yards. And there's some things in the quarterback run game that he makes a threat that a lot of other quarterbacks can't do. And when the when he really needed to make plays in that, that final possession, he was able to step up and do so and, and see some of the reads that his coaches were telling him about earlier in the season or earlier in the game when, when K would miss some opportunities. So, um I think there's potential there. I think that you'll see better from him moving forward. I think that um, it was a good first effort for him. Uh, but, you know, is it going to be up to uh, Carter Stanley, who had obviously a phenomenal 2019 season for Kansas? Probably a little too early for that. But to say that he's probably more of a Big 12 quarterback than what Kansas has had that position in the last 10 years, I, I could probably go there. I mean, there's at least some potential there for him to get better and better as the season goes along. Okay, if you're if you're at least there with the quarterback that – Okay, it's it's more Big Twelve caliber than the other guys. I, I know, obviously, the result wasn't necessarily an explosion of "Wow, this team's better than we thought for KU." But is there enough there on Friday that makes you feel better or worse about your one in eleven prediction for KU, or about the same? Uh, I think about the same. Right. Um, the the problems that KU had or the problems we thought KU would have, right? I mean, they had four weeks to get all their offense in and to learn a whole new scheme and to learn a whole new blocking scheme and a whole new way of doing things and to mesh together as a unit and to have guys play next to each other like they've been veterans um, playing with each other when they haven't. And it looked disorganized. It looked like it was in disarray a lot of times. And and frankly, sometimes the execution just wasn't there either. You know, KU didn't overall get very good blocking from its tight ends and um, its running backs either, honestly. Uh, so, yeah, there's – listen, uh, South Dakota almost beat Kansas, and South Dakota's a team that got no votes in the FCS poll. And they marched in the Lawrence. They had a four-point lead with whatever it was, four minutes left, five minutes left. Uh, Kansas is not going to face a team like that the rest of the season. So I, I'm – I'm probably about exactly where I was before the game. I, I figured and predicted that it would be a close game, and it was. And I think Kansas is, um, you know, through no fault of their own, they're about to be outgunned here. You know, they're, they're going to be outgunned by a lot of these opponents that are going to be much, much better than South Dakota was. So um, I don't have to get in this game. Derek, you're the one that potentially maybe, um, you know, if we're going to admit it, might have to get in this game. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel about the same today for Kansas. There's still going to be possibilities for them to pick one off if they – have turnovers fall right or can hang in the fourth quarter and make some plays, those sorts of things. But um, for the most part, this offense looked sort of behind, and that's the circumstances. That's not the coaches. That's not the players. That's the circumstance of trying to squeeze everything into uh, a summer and fall training camp, and uh, that's kind of where he's going to be the rest of the season, only that's going to now come against better opponents. Well, how much improvement then do you think there can be had? I know some coaches will say that, the biggest improvement comes from week one to week two. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but obviously with this team, I would imagine there's going to be, you know, compared to other teams, exponential improvement just because every day you spend with the staff is 
like in theory worth more than a day spent by another team with their staff since you've just had less days. So I guess how much improvement can come and, and what are things that you actually think can improve over the course of the season versus some things that you think might just be, I guess, shrug emoji? Yeah, well, it's tough, Derek, because um, the time for, like, teaching stuff, uh, I mean, you can work on it in practice, but right now KU's got a week to prepare for Coastal Carolina. So you're, you got a scout team. You're trying to prepare for what they do. They run this crazy triple option stuff, or, you know, defensively they do something. And, um, you know, this isn't sort of, I mean, this isn't spring football. You know, spring football is great because you get these 15 practices, and you just really have to focus on the basics. Hey, do this step, and then punch with this arm, and, and do all these sorts of things. I mean, KU's in game week mode now. You know, I, things will get better. And, you know, Andy Kodalnicki, the offensive coordinator, talked today to, uh, you know, reporters and spoke a little bit about, hey, they feel better about their execution on the offensive line and the communication that's there and, and things that get cleaned up. You go over film, all those sorts of things. But it's not like KU has unlimited time now to just kind of go back and spend another three weeks to, to get all this worked out with the, the wide zone run scheme. I mean, they're sort of where they're at. And, again, you're comparing this to the rest of the cultural landscape. You look at Coastal Carolina, for example. They return 19 of 22 starters. They have 13 guys come back as super seniors this year. I mean, they're as veteran as veteran can get. And now they're facing a KU team that we're talking about, okay, well, could week one to week two, they improve. They should improve. But, again, how much is that improvement going to show up against a team that almost can't be any more veteran than a team like Coastal Carolina is going to be coming up on Friday? So, um, yeah, there are ways KU can improve. And um, Cotal Nicky was right, too, speaking about it today. Um, the thing about the run game is a-, a lot of times you can go back and look at these plays, and that's why football is so complex and kind of beautiful if you go back and watch it is that, there's 11 guys. I mean, you can have three or four guys do well on a play, blocking, do their job, do everything right, and you lose five yards. That happened to Kansas this last game. They have three guys on the backside do their job. It's like, oh, that's good. That's what the wide zone should look like. And on the front side, you know, the, the tackle would just get annihilated, and they'd lose five yards. And the, and the running back would panic, and he'd hop to the outside. And, and that would, you know, lose them five instead of losing three or two or whatever the case may be. So there's things like that. There's small, but, uh, you know, I wrote about it today. Miscommunication on the very, the second play of the game, the first running play that they ran, or the first wide zone play that they ran, you know, between the center and the right guard. I mean, if those guys just talk to each other before the play a little bit more, maybe you get a guy blocked. Maybe there's a little bit more there. Maybe instead of losing five, you gain two, and, and you're all already at third and one. So those are the types of small things that will happen over time that they'll get more comfortable with. And sometimes you just need game reps to kind of get some film and, and see exactly what's going wrong. So that's the kind of improvement you can expect from week to week and have it look better. And instead of KU you know, having two yards to carry, maybe it's two and a half, then three, and then, and then you kind of start to build from there. But as far as just wide-scale changes, again, KU really what would help them is a spring ball. And they kind of had that ruined when they had to hire Lance Leipold uh, there in the last week of April into early May. So for Kansas, a lot of this is just sort of stuck where it is. That's the reality of the situation. But, yeah, you can expect some incremental improvement, and that'll start with just eliminating so many negative runs. I mean, you can't have so many negative run plays, against, especially against an FCS school. It's only going to look worse as the competition improves here over time. Talking with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star here on RCST. When you did your five bold predictions for the start of the season and you predicted every game you had Coastal Carolina blowing KU out, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested over the fact that, you know, if you're viewing this from a lens of how can KU be competitive, 
as good as Coastal Carolina was a season ago, and as good as they seem to be this year with everything you mentioned, all those starters back, the 13 super seniors, KU still only lost that game by 15. So is there anything you take from that game a season ago and say, yeah, they were so much better, but it still was kind of a close game. I mean, it was 35-23, KU got an onside kick, but then they whistled it back, and I forget the review was over, but they ended up giving it to Coastal Carolina. Who knows what would have happened from there. Does that mean anything for this game? Or I guess what do you do with that? Um, I probably don't do much. Uh, just Again, it, to me, it's the trajectory of the programs since that game took place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for Kansas, you have a new coaching staff. You have a new scheme. You have them trying to teach everything in four weeks, and you're without probably three or four best players from a year ago. Um, you know, you're talking Karan Prunty, Marcus Harris, you know, all those guys, Dejon Terry, the ones that were expected to be major contributors, uh, maybe the best players on the team, especially Karan Prunty, and, and those guys aren't there anymore. And then again, you look at Coach Carolina, I just mentioned the stat, you know, 19 to 22 starters back, um, the continuity there confidence built up because they didn't lose then <laughs> almost the entire rest of the season they lost one more time and are now ranked top 20 in the nation and and sort of have that going for them uh so so you know i, I really don't take much from it to be completely honest with you um if you want to yeah i mean if, if you want to be optimistic about it that, that's where you start i mean you lost by 15 i think they had three turnovers in the game too um so you know every turnover was about five points you you take those away and the game's about equal um, this obviously is going to be in Conway, South Carolina, so that makes it different as well. KU had a quote home game last year when there were no fans, so um, take that into account too. But I, I just I see these two programs in different spots, and again, this it's, I, I'm keep repeating it because I, I definitely mean it. it. It's no one's fault. I mean, it's no one's fault that Les Miles left the program as late as he did um, for Kansas, and that they had to you know get an ad in and then hire a coach immediately and then those coaches had to come in and do the best they could with what they had i mean that's that's, that's no one's fault here but but that's that's what it is right now and so for kansas i i just don't compare them to last year i don't think they're as good as they were last year and coach carolina frankly i think they're better than they were last year so um i'm sure that's what coaches should play up and and, and motivational factors absolutely it's how they should play it up hey you hung with these guys last year and uh, a couple things go your way and this game is, is tight at the end but um, again, the, the, the situation as these two teams have played out over the last 12 months really couldn't have been much different. And that's why Kansas is a 27, 25, 26 point underdog in this game. And that's why I definitely see that, why that could be the case. Yeah. And I mean, every part of my head is saying, yes, this game should be a blowout. But again, I just, I look at that game and Coastal, it, it was a tale of two halves. Coastal absolutely dominated the first half and it looked like it was going to be a blowout. It was 28 to 3. Then KU made those inroads in the second half. Was that just Coastal kind of relenting and maybe playing more soft coverage defensively? But like you said, they were minus three in turnovers. You missed a field goal. You have presumably better game management. I I would think you have a better defensive line. I mean, you got you got beat up twelve to two in tackles for loss last year and five to zero in sacks. Now it's not necessarily that I'm confident the KUO line is going to switch that around this year. But I feel like the KU defensive line should be able to provide more chaos in the backfield than two tackles for loss and no sacks like they had a season ago. I, I just 
I, I don't know. I'm, I'm having trouble getting it out of my head how close it was a season ago, given all those things that went Coastal Carolina's way that I kind of feel like could revert to the norm. And I'm not saying, I, I want to make this clear, I'm not saying I, I think KU is going to beat Coastal Carolina or anything. I just actually think that, like, KU, this could be a game that, you know, they're within 14 points going into the fourth quarter. Yeah, that, that would I'm, be a win, right? Right? Would that would that be a win oh, yeah. for the program? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm just not with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just not with you on this one. And, and listen, you're talking to Mister. Like, remember back a couple years ago, Oklahoma State basketball beat Kansas twice in the regular season. The first mm-hmm. time it happened under Bill Self, and it was a team that just was okay. I mean, sometimes things happen in one game sample. It's like, oh, okay, you know, it happened. And you know, right. KU was quote favored in that game, I think, and then ended up losing by 15. So. I, I, and nobody knew how good Coastal Carolina was at the time. I mean, I'm not meaning to say that everybody should have had a crystal ball and known that, but I, I just don't take much from that one game sample that happened when these two programs were on completely different trajectories. And Coastal Carolina didn't even know who Coastal Carolina was. They didn't know how good they were going to be. And Kansas obviously had some optimism going into the season and, and last mile's second year, and, and everything kind of crumbled from there. And we just talk about the new regime and all the changes that have taken place since and, and some of the guys that have left the program. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just. I'm not there with you, and listen, I've I've been wrong plenty of predictions. So, oh, so have uh, I. you know, we yeah, we can we can go down the list of that, but um, now I'm, I'm just I I think this one's going to be a rough one for Kansas, and and we'll see how it plays out. You could definitely be right; it could be a 14 point game. That's just not the way I'm seeing this one play out. Here's Jesse Newell. Check out all his work, KansasCity.com and the Kansas City Star. Jesse, thank you so much for the time, as always. All right, thanks, Eric. All right, that's Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Royals pregame coverage starts up in about 45 minutes right here on KLWN. Game time in a little over an hour. Typically, we have David Lesky of Inside the Crown joining us on Mondays here on RCST, but obviously no show Monday due to Labor Day, but you know, Royal season still going on a month ago, and they're actually playing better right now. So we have David Lusky now on on a Wednesday here. Uh, David, the battle for third place, as we dubbed it a week ago, is raging on in the AL Central. How far can this go, though? The, the Cleveland Indians, without their manager, Terry Francona, have kind of dropped off a little bit. They're at 500. Is the battle for second place, the Royals, I believe, seven back of second, is that still in play over the last month of the season? If they could beat the Indians, yes, but they can't, so it's not. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. The Indians are—they're not good, right? I mean, I'm not saying they're terrible, but they're not good. And the Royals are one and eleven against them. I mean, that's just—it's uh, bad. It, it's frustrating. <laughs> but uh, I mean, look—if if, if they can—if if they can figure out a way to beat them, I was—I was talking with somebody a couple weeks ago that if this was last season's playoff scenario, I mean, they'd be in the playoff race because second place made it. Mm. And we would have been going back, going back before that that last series of the Indians last week. Because last week, whatever it was, yeah, last week. Mm-hmm. Um, going into that, you'd be like, okay, well, they're eight games out with ten to play against this team, so I don't see why they can't have a chance to get in <laughs> second place. But you know, it's not, and so whatever. But it, yeah, I mean, they they can't be the Indians, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, how wild would that be? As as down as it was for a couple months there for the Royals, if. You know, even if they finish within striking distance of second place, just uh, especially going into next year, too, when you're talking about, yeah, like uh, Dayton Moore wants to contend and wants this team to to be a playoff contender like that would be a big step. And you wouldn't even have to look at the record because I think it would more so be about the Indians kind of tanking down the stretch here 
to you know make up seven games in in a month right. span. But um, even if you finish seventy eight and, and eighty four, that might be a, a little bit of a stretch. But even at that point, to say hey, we finished in second place of the division, like clearly we're right here for being in the division race seems to be doable. Uh, with the team in first, though, with the White Sox just kind of blowing by everybody and, and seemingly wrapping this thing up so far out for the division lead, I mean, with as big of a gap as there is, if the Royals are contending next year, I, I don't know, do you view it as like they have to contend for a wild card in that situation? Um, not necessarily, because I think that the... I, look, I like the White Sox. I think they're a good team. Um, they're really well-rounded. They've got, and they can hit. They can hit for some power when they're healthy. Um, they've got a really good rotation. Their bullpen is is really good right now. But if you look at their team, uh, you know I, when they signed Grandal and Keuchel before last season and before the season got shortened and everything, I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, they've got good young players. Eloy Jimenez is very good. Luis Robert looks like he'll be good, and he has been. We didn't know yet. Um, Tim Anderson's obviously good. Yoan Mancata's good. But they're not the youngest team in the world. Um, Lucas Giolito, their rotation, he he took a step back this year. And not that he hasn't been okay. He's been solid, but he's you know he, he hasn't been the guy that he was in 19 and 20. Um, Lance Lynn's been awesome this year, but he's, what, 35, 36, something like that? I mean, there's no guarantee. Keuchel has... I mean, falling off a cliff, kind of like I expected. You know, it, it, it's certainly possible. Liam Hendricks is an older guy. Craig Kimbrell, who they have under control for next year now, he's a little bit older. I mean, it, it's it's possible that they aren't as good next year just because, I mean, they're, they're, their veterans can drop off at any time. Jose Abreu, I mean, he's he's consistent, and every single year he seems to put up the same numbers, but also at some point he's not going to again. I mean, it, he's not everybody's Nelson Cruz. So it, it, it could be. It seems like they have a shot. Um, if, if they're going to be good enough to, to make the playoffs, I think they're good enough to potentially at least run with the White Sox for a little bit. Um, it doesn't hurt that they seem to match up pretty well with them, as we've seen from them. They took the season series this year going 10-9. and nine. I mean, I don't think they're going to win the division, but I think that if, if you have your sights set on the playoffs, I mean, you might as well have your sights set on the division, too, because, look, who are you competing with? It's the loser of... Rays, Yankees, Blue Jays, Red Sox, <laughs> in the whichever the, the teams that win the division, the other three are are part of the wild card race. In the West, it's the A's are always pretty good. The Astros, the Mariners are on the rise. The Angels never win, but also they've got. I mean, next season we'll have Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. You know, who's to say they can't win? So uh, the wild card may be more difficult than the division, honestly. Um, so it's it's a tough sled, but you know, look, if you're going to make the playoffs, you're going to beat some good teams. Talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. So, uh, more, you know, in-season stuff. Jackson Kowar starts last night. The stats didn't look too friendly, but he still made it through a good amount of the game. Uh, what were some encouraging signs from Jackson Kowar last night, and what are some other things that need to continue to improve for him to be more of the guy that we saw at the start of the minor league season in AAA than what we've seen over the course of the other portions of it? Last night, I, I thought that he was generally really good. The problem is sometimes generally really good leads to six runs and six innings. And, and you know, in the first inning, that, that was the two walks were the biggest issue, obviously. They both came around to score. Um, <clears throat> the, the RBI single from Santander, like, that was a really good pitch. 
But he went out and he did exactly what Coar wanted him to do. He hit a ground ball to the right side. It just found a hole. So that that that's sort of bad luck. That was that wouldn't have mattered as much if he hadn't walked the first two guys. So the, there's this whole never-ending circle of blame there. But um, then he gave up a, an RBI ground out on a really good pitch to Austin Hayes, and then uh, like the home run he gave up. Yeah, it was a change up. It, it probably hung a little bit, but it was still below the zone. And and not that you can anticipate a, a robbed home run, but I think Michael A. Taylor catches that ball if he knows where the wall is. So. You're looking at a very different inning if this ground ball that he was looking to get goes three feet to the right or Michael A. Taylor realizes the fence is there and doesn't run right into it, which was kind of funny. Um, just, you know, it, it changes the whole tenor of the game, honestly. But it happened. And part of, like I said, part of why it was a problem is because he walked the first two hitters of the game, which he can't do. Um, but, I mean, he, he came back and he went five innings and gave up two runs and he... The slider was nasty. The changeup looked so good at times. Um, his fastball was, was moving really well. So I really liked what I saw from him. It's just he, he made a couple mistakes. And I think sometimes, I think I've said this before, but sometimes with young players, I almost don't mind them failing to see how they respond. And when Kohar gave up four in the first, after that first stint in the big league a few months ago, I'm like, all right, let's see what he does here. And then he got him one, two, three in a second. And I think that's a really big sign of maturity for him. Um, I mean, I think he sh- the stuff plays. It, it, you don't have to understand pitching to know that that stuff is really good. So it's just a matter of getting consistent, a little better control, better command. But uh, overall, I thought, I thought he was as good as you can be when you give up six runs in six innings. As far as what he's done to this point in the return in total, have you seen enough from Kowar to make you think he will be part of the 2022 rotation? Man, that rotation's interesting because there's just so many young pieces and Mike Miner, who is under contract, <laughs> and he's the only guy who... Kind of ironic really... that the old guy is called Miner, right? Right, that's true. You're right. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, it, it doesn't fit him very well anymore, but he uh, he's the only guy who you look at and you go, okay, well, they they're going to get if they want to, if he's on the team, because he could be traded, it's certainly possible. Um, he's the only guy you're looking at and you go, okay, they're going to get 33 starts from that guy. Because I wrote this this morning, I mean, it's still going to be a little bit of a tough go to get all of these guys up to 30 starts after the season they had this year from last season. You know, it's, I think Carlos Hernandez, the, most, he's, the highest number of innings he's probably going to get to is like 125, 130. Uh, Singer is probably close to 135, 140. Uh, the rest of them are kind of hovering between 115 and 130, and it's just it's going to be tough to count on those guys for 175 innings even next season. And I think the Royals will be, continue to be sort of careful with them. And so I, I think that, you know if a guy isn't in the opening day rotation, that doesn't mean he's not going to make 15 starts. And I think that's okay. And the Royals are in a really good position with all of the arms because obviously there's Singer and Bubich and Lynch and Carlos Hernandez and now Jackson Coar and Brad Keller, who's only 26 years old. Um, but there's also Austin Cox and John Heasley and Anel Zerpa and uh, Alec Marsh and Jonathan Bolin when he comes back. And Asa Lacey could, 
when, you know, he's going to come back from injury, and if he if he can get that command under control, he's he's going to go fast too. We we don't talk about him anymore. <laughs> he was the number four overall pick last season. So there, there are so many arms that are within shouting distance of the big leagues. That I mean, they, they've got plenty of depth there, and some of them won't work out. Some of them will. Some of them won't work out as starters and will be relievers, and some of them just won't be good at all. But they've got a lot of depth there, and I think you're going to see a handful of guys. So I don't know if Kolar is in the, in the opening day mix. I think he's done enough to give himself a shot in spring training. But, it, you know, being in the opening day mix doesn't mean you're not – or not being in the opening day mix doesn't mean you're not going to be there at some point. So I, I think we'll see a lot of him next year too. Yeah, I, I wonder if they're going to be in a situation with everything you said with the innings and having a bunch of guys that could start for them. I look at like the Houston Astros this year, and I don't necessarily mean you'll have that success. Maybe you will, but um, like a guy like Christian Javier came out at the beginning yeah. of the year and was was dominating as a starter for the Astros. But there were some peripherals like his walk rate that maybe they thought, hey, this guy would be better as a reliever, and we want to keep his innings down, and we're going to move him to the bullpen. And then you have certain guys throughout the season emerge, like a Luis Garcia, or you're able to use different guys in a starting role, skip guys starts and allow yourself to keep some of these young pitchers down. I wonder, or, or innings down, I, I wonder if that'll be the case as well for the Royals next season where, you know, for all we know, maybe a guy like Carlos Hernandez, or uh, that's probably a bad one because he's probably more toward the higher end of that rotation, but a player right. like that turns into kind of that long reliever. Sometimes you use him in high leverage. Sometimes he's a spot starter, just kind of flex guy. Yeah, I could totally see that. And they, like they've got the arms for it. I mean, Chris Bubich is the only guy you look at that you're like, I don't know that I want him coming in in the eighth inning of a tie game because he could look dominant or hang a changeup, <laughs> and he doesn't have the, the 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 firepower behind his fastball. Not no, I'm not saying that he couldn't be a good reliever, obviously, but um, I, all the rest of those guys. I mean, would you want to face Jackson Coar throwing 99 with his changeup and now his slider? I wouldn't <laughs> late in the game. Yeah, he might walk three guys. Um, but I mean that they have a lot of guys who could be weapons in their spot. I think the Astros are a really good comparison there just because of what they've done this year. Talking with David Lesky inside the crown here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. So Adalberto Mondesi has returned now for the Royals. What are your thoughts on how he's played so far since his return and how the Royals have been using him in the field? I think he's good. Um, and he hasn't he hasn't hit quite like he did in those first ten games, but he does he does have what four or six steals, something like that. Um, I think he's looked good at third. Um, I figured he would make some silly mistakes because he'd literally never played there in, in professional baseball before. I don't know why he didn't play there on his rehab assignment. That seems dumb to me, but he didn't. And in his first couple of games, yeah, he made a, he made a throw to second that should have been to first. Um, got the out. It wouldn't have. It didn't change much. Um, he, he he made a mistake on going after a pop-up, I think. The little things that you learn as you play the position, but I think he's looked good there. He looks quick. He looks fast. Um, he's playing back-to-back days for the first time this se- or first time since he's been back. Um, I guess technically it's four games in a row because he did pinch run on Monday. So he's he's been in there for four straight games, which is a good sign. And... I, I'm, I'm pleased with what I've seen from him. I think that when having him, having that extra element in the lineup, and it's extra element because it's speed and power with him, it, it lengthens a, a lineup that is really short. So to have him, even if he goes over four, there's at least another guy that I has to think about, which you know, that 
thinking about more more guys, even if they're not hitting. I think having that in the back of your mind, okay, I've got to get him because Mondesi is lurking. I think that helps. I think that helps everybody in the lineup. And so that's, uh, that, that's a benefit. The Royals, it, it, when he starts playing more often, and I don't, I don't think he'll play every single day, but two days in a row is a good start. I mean, you can't get to three days in a row until you play two days in a row. So um, it's, it's been, been good to see him in there. And I, like I said, I think he looks like himself. He's, he's, he's moving well, everything, and hopefully in these last, what, 28 games, 26 games, 24, whatever it is, the, uh, the injuries are behind him and he can finish out the season healthy. He is David Lesky. You can check out all his work inside the crown. David, thank you so much for the time as always. Definitely. Thanks, Derek. All right, that's David Lesky of Inside the Crown joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.